0: Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Ask Shane Anything, and what a weekend it is! This weekend you have some tough choices to make. You can either play Marvel Spider-Man 2, you can play Sonic Superstars, or you can play Super Mario Brothers Wonder. So I won't blame you guys if this week's episode of Ask Shane Anything does a couple less views than we're used to. I totally get it, you guys should be playing one of those three. Awesome games, and as you might expect, we'll be talking about them on Game Face on Tuesday. Just a reminder that this show happens because some of you pledge at $7 or more per month at patreon.com sifted. Everybody gets to watch the show, everyone gets to watch the archive, well our patrons anyway, uh, but because of those people who are pledging at that higher amount this show happens. And I do enjoy doing this. I hope you guys enjoy watching it. Let's get to your questions. First up this week, we have a question from Bachby. How much importance do you think Ubisoft will place on Assassin's Creed Mirage's sales when considering creating more classic Assassin's Creed games? I feel like the game still doesn't give fans what they're really hoping for. We want the parkour from Unity, the combat speed, and Assassin recruits from Brotherhood, and the great counters and animation variety from Assassin's Creed 3. Are we asking for too much? First of all, no way you're asking for too much. You're asking for things that they already did and already figured out to come back. They already know how to do this. So no, you're not asking for too much. And honestly, as a fan who supports a franchise, I don't think there's such a thing as asking for too much. You want the game to get better. You want the franchise to get better. You want the same things that the publisher, Ubisoft, wants. So no, first of all, to answer your question, you are not asking for too much. I don't think you could ever ask for too much. Now. As far as Mirage is concerned, now, initial reporting on the sales for Assassin's Creed Mirage have been very encouraging. Um, Ubisoft released a press release on Twitter uh, where it explained that it is tracking around the same sales as Assassin's Creed Origins and Assassin's Creed Odyssey. So it looks like Valhalla maybe is outp- or outpaced it, but... Origins and Odyssey both sold exceptionally well, and Ubisoft claims that Mirage is trending in that same direction, or is already selling as well as uh, those two games. Also, by the way, Ubisoft claims that it is already its best-selling new-gen release, meaning that it's the best-selling game that it's released so far for PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series consoles. So... I don't think you have anything to worry about. (laughs) Honestly, I think the game's doing pretty darn well. Um, Now, I will admit that I agree with you. There are some elements of prior games that I would also like to see in this one. And obviously, you've already watched my impressions of the game uh, on Game Face. You know, kind of how I feel about the game itself. Story to me wasn't great. Mechanics were okay. I was a little bit disappointed in the game. So... I'm actually encouraged to hear that the sales are doing well enough that Ubisoft will be motivated to maybe try this again. To try a more pared down, more simple approach to the franchise, which I'll be honest with you, is what I really want anyway. I just don't feel like Mirage nailed it, so to speak. But, if they keep returning to this idea, I do think that they will start incorporating a lot of the ideas and concepts from the earlier games. The one thing that I miss that you also miss is the assassin recruits from Brotherhood. I think that that is so awesome. It feels so empowering to be fighting someone and then just, like, tap a shoulder button and bring in some assassin to help you fight. I think that is so awesome. I don't know why it ever went away. It's such a great mechanic. It's such a great idea. So I do hope something like that comes back. Now, I will take some issue when talking about the great counters of Assassin's Creed 3. Look, they look good, and I would say they look better than the counters that are in Mirage. However, they also break the combat. Like, for many entries of Assassin's Creed, the counter kills literally kind of ruined the game. Because you could just stand there and just wait for someone to attack, you tap the button, do the counter kill, and they just take turns dying. Um, so, I liked... The look of the counter-kills, I like the concept of the counter-kills. However, the way they've been executed throughout the series' history, I feel like they need to make some tweaks to it. And to, to be honest, they did, ultimately. Like, Valhalla's counter-kills don't work exactly the same. It did kind of balance the battlefield at least a little bit. So, I hear you. I honestly want, like, a little bit more of a prevalence of the modern-day story, the Animus, like, there's so little of that. In Mirage, I feel like it's almost like it's kind of lost its identity a little bit as a franchise. So, look, I hear you. You're a big fan of Assassin's Creed. So am I. We both want the best possible Assassin's Creed games. And I think both of us also agree that it's kind of somewhere in the middle from what we got in Mirage and what we've been getting with Valhalla. So, the good news is Ubisoft sold plenty of units. It has plenty of incentive to make another one and plenty of incentive to improve that sequel. All right, next up we have a question from our main man, Kevin. A site accidentally posted its review of Spider-Man 2 before embargo, but then removed the review. Can you enlighten us as to what will happen if an embargo is broken? Have you ever broken an embargo by mistake? First of all, Kevin, I, I want to say thank you because you assume that we have, or I, have never broken an embargo on purpose. <laughs> and I appreciate that because that is true. I never have. Um, let me see. I'll get to your first question first. What, what happens if you break an embargo? It depends on a lot of things. Um, the first thing I would say is generally this happens at smaller outlets. It doesn't usually happen at the big boys, although it does sometimes, but not very often. Um, usually it's at a smaller website and they'll say they accidentally leaked it, when in truth they probably did it on purpose to try to try to draw attention to their website. Now that's a cost-benefit analysis that that website owner needs to make. Um, If they feel like the influx in traffic is going to help their business more than they're going to be hurt by being cut off by the publisher, then maybe it's smart to do that. And so to answer your second part of your question, like what happens when this happens? If you're a smaller website, usually you get cut off. And sometimes you don't even have to be a smaller website. If it's a big enough deal, even big websites sometimes get cut off from review code by publishers for breaking embargo. If you're a small guy, Your excuse of, oh, it's on accident or whatever. Generally, the publisher is going to be like, look, we're not going to try to investigate and figure out whether this was on purpose or not. The bottom line is you failed. Your job was to protect this content and you didn't do it. And now we don't trust you. It doesn't really matter why they don't trust you. They just don't. And so they will probably cut you off from a view code. Now, again... It might be worth it for a small outlet that's just starting out that doesn't have much traction to be the first one to review a game and get all this influx of people to their site now. Then the rest of their content and the the review itself needs to hold water and then maybe people stick around. It's a complicated algorithm trying to figure out whether breaking embargo is worth it for a small publication it's never worth it for a big publication. It's just not. Um, If you do the cost-benefit analysis of not having, just going from the last question, Ubisoft games on your site for the next three years or five years, however long they suspend you for, it's not worth it because it's not just the reviews that you're getting cut off of. It's all the other coverage. It's their press conferences. It's all their other games. It's everything. Access to their executives. It's all of it. You lose it all. So for big publications is absolutely not worth it to do it and if depending on the, the circumstances you may not get suspended if you're big enough because you have to realize that the publishers also looking at it like okay they published it a couple hours earlier than everybody else if we cut them off we don't get any coverage from their audience for three years it could hurt us too if you look at an ign that has i'm just spitballing here 50 million uniques a month so 50 million people going to IGN.com every month. If you're a publisher, do you want to cut yourself off from that audience for every game? So publishers have to figure that out. Is it worth it for them to suspend the publication? If you're gigantic, the chances of being suspended are lower. Now, even at game trailers, we had someone go rogue and do something that they shouldn't have done. And even with our gigantic audience at the time, we were still cut off by a major publisher for, it was like six months or something like that. Um, So it still happens. There are publishers that are like, you know what? We're going to suspend you anyway. We'll take the hit on losing the coverage on all our other games because of this. So there's no black and white rule here, I guess is what I'm getting at. And now to answer your final question, which was, have I ever broken an embargo on accident? I've definitely never done it on purpose. However, there was one time where an editorial team under my employee broke. Well, actually twice. I talked about the one earlier, you know, a couple minutes ago, but there was another one. Um, Both of these were actually completely out of my control, but I still have to take responsibility for them because they're my employees. Um, The the other one was a review for, I believe it was Gears of War 2, or it may have been Gears of War 3, I can't remember, but we were at Game Trailers, and basically what happened was the site was exploding, and people were just, like, obsessed with our website. I, I mean, I don't know how to say it. People were obsessed with our website, like... Just like we put up a review, and within like five minutes, it would have done like 200,000 views. People sat there and waited, like refreshing our page for our reviews to come out. What somebody did was they figured out the nomenclature in our URLs, like the sequence of information in our URLs, and figured out what the URL would be for that review, typed it into their browser, and boom, there was the review for Gears of War. Um, They found it, I think it was three hours before embargo or something like that. And it was obviously just a nightmare because we couldn't figure out for the longest time, like how the heck did they find this review? But as it turns out, like first of all, what was happening that no one knew about other than the site architect, I'm not going to call him out by name, but the site architect had set it up so that like, if we scheduled something to be published, it actually was published immediately on the site, it just wouldn't be pointed to on the site at that time. It would only be pointed to at the date and time that we specified. We didn't know this. We thought that like, Nothing was on the website until we published it and it went live. That was not the case, actually. And so, some smart person figured out like the sequence of numbers, how things would work out. And they just, through the process of elimination, they kept typing in numbers and they found our review. And it went up on all the message boards on the internet. And then we got a call from Xbox. And I had to do, I had to put out all the fires and then we had to figure out what happened. And then we had to change the website so it didn't happen anymore. And we had to prove it. To Microsoft and Xbox that we had changed the website so that it would never happen again. Now, result of that? No suspension. They totally believed us and understood. And again, once we proved to them that we had changed the website so it wouldn't happen again, they were totally cool with it. So there's an example of how it can go. And I'm sure Microsoft in that situation was like, hey, look, game trailers is exploding. They're this big new video site. They're the future of gaming websites. Like, we don't want to cut them off. I'm sure. That weighed into their decision-making, but ultimately, they did not suspend us. So, there's really no cut-and-dried way to look at breaking embargo, but my guess is that website that did it, I don't even know this story, I don't remember seeing this, but my guess is it was a small website that decided it was worth the risk, and I'll tell you right now that um, they will never, probably, ever get early review code from PlayStation ever again. So, I hope it was worth it, because they're going to pay the big price. (laughs) Alright, next up we have a question from Red Fox. Do you have any MMA related stories from the Spike days? I seem to remember that Tito Ortiz suddenly popped up in an Invisible Walls episode with you trying to fit him into the format. Not the best gaming discussion, but still entertaining. Some of you may not know this, but when I was the editor in chief of Game Trailers and the supervising producer of Game Trailers, I also had this whole other job. I was, my title was actually VP of Content at Spike Digital Entertainment. So I ran Game Trailers, I was still the EIC, I was even the reviews editor for a long time after I got that promotion eventually gave it to somebody else. But I was still the EIC. I was still the supervising producer. I was still checking every edit before they came out of our edit bays, um, even though I was doing this whole other job working for Spike.com and Spike TV. Um, So at that time, Spike TV had the UFC. They had Ultimate Fighter. It was their most popular TV show by a mile. Um, There was all this cross-promotion that would go on in Spike between the website and big UFC events. Um, For example, we helped build UFC.com for the UFC. And then we also built like a a mini site for UFC 100, um, which was this huge celebration for them. And we just built this crazy site and basically got all these clips on. It was a gigantic project. And I had to work with the UFC. We had meetings twice a week for like a year and a half straight. And believe it or not, Dana White was on those calls. He... Is a micromanager. He feels like he needs to have his hands in every little part of the UFC. Now look, I don't know if it's still that way. He may have chilled out over time, but I was astonished that he would be on those calls. We'd be talking about the most minute crap. Okay, let's talk about this one clip from this one fight. And he would chime in, be like, Well, I don't really like that, but and you're just like, what are you doing, dude? Go manage the UFC. So he was a micromanager. I could not believe. The calls that he sat on i was like you're way too important to be sitting on this like even our like svps aren't on this call like i'm a vp i'm the highest ranking guy on here and that's the way it should be and for whatever reason he just couldn't let it go so yes i have i can't even tell you how many stories i have about working with the ufc um First of all, so the show was weekly, so you know we were constantly working with the fighters, doing interviews and profiles, like the guys on the show. So for those of you who don't know, The Ultimate Fighter is this reality show where a bunch of guys live in a house, and they try to make the UFC. They fight each other, and then the champion actually gets a UFC contract. So we talked to the participants on that show constantly, my guys did anyway, doing interviews, going behind the scenes, going into the house and embedding in the house for a couple days. All that content we had to produce and then filter out through Spike.com. So we worked on all that stuff. We worked on the mini sites that, like, I talked about. If they had big, like, UFC 101, UFC 115, or whatever, we would promote the living crap out of that on our website. We had a huge partnership with the UFC, and it was very, very important for us to make sure that we could that we navigated that properly because we could lose it, and it would be a lot of money lost to Spike TV. So to your point about Tito Ortiz coming on Game Face, well, that was, or I'm sorry, coming on Invisible Walls. Um, That was a mandate handed down to me. They're like, hey, Tito's coming in to L.A. to meet the Spike people and blah, blah, blah. Is there anything we can do with him while he's here to make him feel important? And so I'm like, Tito's a big gamer. Let's bring him on our gaming podcast, Invisible Walls. They're like, that's great. That's brilliant, Shane, blah, blah, blah. So you know the result. It was like it wasn't a great fit. Tito is a good guy. And I'll be honest with you, like. For a time there, Tito was kind of one of my friends. I know it's weird, but like we would email and text each other for a while. Um, But that's how business goes, right? You meet people and then you don't work there anymore and you, you know, you don't contact, you just lose contact with them. So I haven't talked to Tito in a really long time at this point, but we were kind of bros for a while there. So um, MMA stuff, it was just constant. Like there's just always stuff going on. And then anytime there was a UFC video game, of course, it was incumbent upon us to make sure we promoted the living crap out of it because we wanted the UFC to do well. Because if the UFC did well, then, you know, Spike did well. And so we did a lot more coverage on UFC games than most other publications did at that time. And we would do profiles with the fighters. Like one of my first gigs I ever had at GameSpot, actually, when I entered the industry was covering the first ever UFC game. And and interviewing everybody that was in the first UFC game, culminating in going to an actual UFC event where a lot of them fought and lost. It was a real eye opener for me. I remember being in the airport the next morning after the fights and seeing some of the people that I had interviewed and like trying to figure out a way to say hey, without offending them, because they were like you know their eyes are all swollen up and they had lost, and it's it was just really weird and awkward. But then eventually we ended up doing this blogger program with a UFC fighter named Evan Tanner. And Evan Tanner was a good fighter, but he was also kind of aloof. He had had, like, substance abuse problems in the past. So he was kind of, like, going in and out of MMA. But I believe he was, like, the middleweight champ for a spell there. But anyway, he was a very unique guy, one of the more unique MMA fighters in UFC at the time. And so he started doing a blog for us at Spike.com. And the blog really had very little to do with MMA. It mostly just talked about—he talked about training some— And he kept it like tangentially there because he knew ultimately that's why he was doing the blog. But mostly it was just about his thoughts and his private life. And about a month and a half into him doing the blog, and he was doing the blog like updating it like three days a week or something like that. About a month and a half into that, he started talking on the blog about some trip he was going to take out into the desert um, to just kind of go out and clear his head for a while, figure out what's he want, what he wants to do going forward. He bought a motorcycle and built it very specifically and altered it very specifically for his thing out into the desert. People, there were red flags going up. People were saying, like, this doesn't sound right, like, is Evan gonna go out and just die in the desert? So much so that in one of his blogs he addressed it. He was like, look, I'm not going out here to die. I know what I'm doing. I'm building this bike for this very reason. I'm not stupid. I know what the desert's like, I'm gonna be safe, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And that kind of waylaid everyone's fears, and then he went out into the desert and he died. He went out into the desert, he ran out of water, he could not find his way back out, his motorcycle wouldn't start, and he died in the desert. And That's the craziest UFC story I have. Um, The odd part about it was that after it happened, like nobody reached out to us for a comment. Like we thought, like my boss was like, Shane, you need to be in the office early tomorrow because you're going to be getting calls from newspapers and TV stations and blah, 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 asking you about the blog because he basically chronicled the end of his life on Spike.com. Nobody called. Is that a testament to journalism? or I don't know. (laughs) But nobody called, and that's for a comment or a quote. I had been working, and that's one of those projects that I actually worked, like, hands-on with. I had worked on that project for three months, like, several days a week. Nobody wanted to comment about it. And then it's funny, like, now there's these crazy documentaries about it. Still, no one talked to anyone at Spike.com for any of those documentaries. It's really bizarre. But anyway, Evan Tanner died in the desert while he was writing a blog for me and for Spike.com. May he rest in peace. All right, our final question for today's episode comes from AJ the Legend. With the current real world events involving Israel and Palestine, do you believe that there are any game developers willing to take on a project that would address a conflict? If a developer did take it on, would it be considered distasteful or something that could provide context to the conflict? Okay, man. First of all, I'm just going to say before I answer this that I do not 100% understand the whole Israel Palestine thing. I don't. I know the basics of it, but I'm very nervous trying to act like I know anything about it because I don't. And there's so many emotions tied up in this and everything that I don't want to misspeak or say anything. So I'm just going to say right out front, I know limited amounts on what's going on in the actual conflict. So if I say something that upsets someone, I'm really sorry. I don't mean it that way. Um... But the first thing I would say is that generally video game developers and publishers are very afraid of touching subject matter like this. For the same reason, I'm a little nervous answering the question about it. Because particularly with Israel and Palestine, emotions are really high. Um, And honestly, I think a lot of game developers and publishers are like, let's just stay away from that. (laughs) Like, if you look at it, it's like, what's the best result? People aren't angry. What's the worst result? they are outside of our offices picketing. So I don't think the upside of doing games like this is drastic enough to convince the big boys to do something like that. And so they haven't, honestly. Um... I just mentioned this in a, prior, a couple of episodes ago, a game that everyone points to, which is called Spec Ops Line. Now, Spec Ops Line. someone even replied in the comments that like, the game really isn't that great. They're right. It's not, look, it, it got the, the reviews that it deserved. This Metacritic is accurate. Like it's not like a nine out of 10 game, but it does break boundaries. It approaches topics in a video game that most shooters don't. And that was published by a fairly major publisher. So it does stand as an anomaly, But that also shows you it's an anomaly um, because it's just not worth the risk. There's been a couple other games um, that have caused people to, I wouldn't say protest, but it ruffled some feathers for sure. And that is a game called Six Days in Fallujah. Um, I don't know if that game's ever coming out. They kind of re-announced it for launch a couple years ago, and now here we are. It still hasn't come out. A lot of people were protesting and angry about it. Again, that's also kind of... um, some subject matter that's very sensitive to some people. Um, and I, also, I kind of wonder if, no matter how you handle it, if you're ever going to handle it well. And so I don't know if that game's ever going to come out. Um, again, it was announced. People rebelled against it. People thought it had gone away. And then two years ago, they're like, nope, we're reviving it, and it's actually coming out. And people, there was an uproar again. And now it's kind of gone back underground again. So I don't know if that's going to happen. And then there's another... Indie game on Steam called uh, "Death from Above," and this game you play as a Ukrainian drone pilot, uh, basically flying drones around the battlefield and dropping bombs on the Russian military. Um, that game is a small game; most people don't even know that it exists. And that's what I think you're going to see mostly. <laughs> it's, it's at, you're asking like, "Will uh, will someone do it? Will a publisher do it? Will a developer do it?" Sure, they will, but it's going to be these little guys who don't have anything to lose. It kind of goes back to the whole cost-benefit analysis of breaking an embargo. It's like, is it ultimately worth it? Like, you may get, like, some publicity right away, but is it going to stay? And what is a lasting impression of you after that initial rush goes away? It's that you decided to tackle stuff that other people wouldn't. Some people, I think, may admire that. I think most people do not. So it's tough. Um, let me get to your specific questions. Um, do you believe that there are any game developers willing to take on a project that would address a conflict? Yes. Um, some developers, any big developers? No. Um, if the developer did take it on, it would be considered distasteful to some people. It would to other people. Maybe not. It all depends on how it's handled. Look, like I have no problem with death from above. I I have no problem playing as a Ukrainian soldier dropping bombs on the Russians. I don't, I think Russia invaded their country. They should be kicked out. I hate Putin. I think Putin's a murderer. Um, I have no problem with that. But some people might. Some people are just humanitarians. They just don't want to see war at all. I totally understand everyone has their own perspective on things. So... Yes, some people would consider it distasteful. some people won't, but ultimately for big publishers, it's just not worth the risk. <laughs> Alright, that's it for Ask Shane Anything for this week. Maybe I should have chosen a more lighthearted topic to end the show on, or maybe had that in the middle somewhere. It's just kind of how everything worked out, but I hope you guys have a great weekend. Hope you're enjoying playing Spider-Man 2 or Super Mario Brothers Wonder or Sonic Superstars. All great games to play this weekend. This month has been great to play games. You may not play anything, any of those. You may be playing games that you bought earlier in the month, and I would I totally understand that uh, once again thanks to everybody who pledges at that seven dollars or more per month tier that's why this show happens everybody gets to watch it um of course you guys are our patrons as well and i appreciate every one of you but without those people pledging at that higher tier this show simply wouldn't happen so have yourselves a great weekend full of awesome games and we'll see you on tuesday for game Face.